street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. From San Antonio, Texas, here's Anthony Magnabasco. <laughs> Thank you for the kind introduction. I really appreciate it. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. And if I speak too fast, it could be some sort of sign like slow down. It's very exciting to be here. It's my first time to Oslo. Never been here before. My second international talk, I was in Manchester about six months ago. Uh, of course, I want to thank Eldorado Bookstore for hosting this event and my friends, uh, Larsh. Life, uh, Salve, and Linda for behind the scenes. They worked very hard to make sure that this event went off without a hitch. So thank you guys very much. I greatly appreciate that. I also have to thank the people that paid for me to come here. We did a GoFundMe about three months ago to raise money for me to attend four events. This was one of the four. We raised more than 5,000 US dollars in three days because there are people that are excited about this. They see the potential and they want to back this and help spread the word and that's why I'm here. I'm here to share this wonderful secret with you, this street epistemology thing. And we showed a couple of examples before we started here and I get emotional watching that, like thinking uh, how she's finally maybe for the first time <clears throat> thinking about a belief that she's formed perhaps in a different way than she has ever before. Somebody that's going to a Bible class um, and studying it, but maybe never really taking the time as, if, as when she did there with, with my friend Reed, who was doing that. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that I don't speak for the street epistemology community. I'm one person who's been doing this for five years. I don't dictate what street epistemology is, okay? But I have been doing it for a while and speaking about it quite a bit. And I've had probably over a thousand conversations now with folks. Uh, questioning what they believe, why, and how they're so sure. I don't want to assume that you know what street epistemology is, so I'm going to take five minutes, or actually ten, to explain what it is. So there should be uh, very little ambiguity as far as what it is. Uh, I want to show you a ten-minute example. I know we were watching a few examples at the start, but there's one in particular I'd like to play for you. And then I want to spend about 25 minutes actually showing you the steps that I think are important if you want to go ahead and do street epistemology. And that's about 45 minutes total, which means that we probably have a good 30 minutes or so for questions and answers. So if you can save your questions to the end, that would be great. Form them in a question. And if you're a little shy about asking questions, but you're on Twitter, if you use the hashtag OsloSE on Twitter, uh, there will be a volunteer here that will look for those and will ask your question for you. But when I go through the here are the steps, I'm breaking them up into three things. The assumptions that we make are very important. A lot of times when we engage in these conversations, there are things that we just assume about the person that we're talking to that usually you're okay, but if you get deep into a conversation, you start hitting roadblocks, you might want to revisit these assumptions. I'm going to talk about the elements of an effective chat, what makes a talk street epistemology, and then perhaps the most important part of it is this recovery phase that as a practitioner of street epistemology, it could be a little stressful talking to person after person and listening to very uh, deeply held beliefs that people have. So it's important for you to recover as a practitioner and the person that you're speaking with to recover as well. 
So a little overview here. Okay, so I'll start with the word epistemology because it's an, it's an intimidating word. Uh, it simply means the study of knowledge. It's the, it's the study of how people come to know the things that they claim to know. And uh, there are many different epistemologies. Some people might roll a die or they might just uh, f flip a coin or they might do research or read an article or they listen to what their best friend told them or look at a consumer report or something. Or maybe they will use faith to determine that something is true. So street epistemology is, despite the name street, it doesn't necessarily mean going out on the street. The examples that I'm gonna show you today are of people, myself and others, going out on the street and initiating talks. You do not have to do that. You can wait until these talks just bubble up naturally. Um, but there's, there's this perception that, oh, he's going out on the street and he's telling people what to think, kind of like a proselytizing street preacher. And it's really the complete opposite. When, when we're engaging in a talk, I'm interested in what you believe. I'm not here to tell you what I think you should believe. And that's a big difference with street epistemology. Uh, this is also based on the Socratic method. There's a lot of Socratic questions. If you noticed in the examples, uh, the, the practitioner there is Reed, and he was asking just question after question, trying to peel back the layers of how she determined that her holy book is true. But we have a dash of science in there too. Uh, we want to go where the science takes us. Okay, so when I, when I say that, I mean we're adding on to the Socratic method. Uh, you'll notice in a lot of examples, we, we ask a person, how confident are you in this belief on a scale from, from zero to 100? That's taken almost directly from motivational interviewing. Um, so I really like this SE thing because it seems to be kind of growing, kind of like a snowball going down here, like we're gathering more information, we're growing, expanding, and picking up speed. Another important thing here with street epistemology is that, I'm sure you probably all have experience with this. When you are talking to somebody that has a belief that seems unusual or doesn't seem to jive with reality, we typically think, well, let me just send them an article. Let me send them a news, a news release or something. Here's the facts that show that you're mistaken. And what typically happens is people will just say, oh, okay, thanks. They may never look at your facts. They'll find a reason usually to ignore them. And they may even believe what they believe even more. And the nice thing about street epistemology is that questions rule the day. We're always asking questions to, to please explain to me how you concluded that this is true. And the objective here is not necessarily to change a person's mind, but it's to help a person reflect on this belief in a way that they may have never done so before, like that example there. This is largely about placing a pebble in a person's shoe so that they go home and they can think about it later. Boy, that guy asked some really tough questions. How do I find the answer to that? Maybe I need to talk to Mr. Manier and find out how he determined that that's true. Another important thing is we ask three major types of questions, what, why, and how. We ask, what do you believe? We wanna understand those things. We also wanna understand why, what are the reasons? But we ask a lot of how questions in street epistemology, which is related to the method that a person used to conclude that something was true. This was filmed probably three years ago. It's one of my favorite talks, and I always get choked up at the end uh, watching it, but this young woman, we're on a university campus. She agrees to talk with me. I try to be very clear up front what I'm doing. She knows that I'm recording. She consents to that. 
And I, I ask her to pick a belief that she really feels strongly about, and she picks karma. So as this video is playing out, you'll see things popping up on the screen. I have a little acronym that pops up in the top right, I believe, PART, P-A-R-T, counting the number of times I pause, ask a question, repeat something back, or tell her what to believe. And I also have the words what, why, how to sort of categorize the questions that I'm asking. So we're taking an example and we're really being very meticulous about what's happening here. So there will be all these things popping up on the screen so that you can see some of the mechanics that are happening in the example. Hi. Do you have five minutes for an interview? Sure. All right, awesome. How you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm live streaming and recording. You down with that? Yeah. All right. My name's Anthony. Hello, Anthony. I'm Kiana. Hi. It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> you too. Such a smiling face. Are you happy for about something? Or do you um, have good news? Or <laughs> you look really happy? Well, school's out, so... Yeah. Yeah. And you have finals that. next week? Yes. Have I had some earlier this week, and now I have some. Okay. Yeah. May I get the spelling of your first name? K-I-A-N-A. -A. Kiana. Yes. All right, cool. Key. All right, my name is Anthony, and what I do is just flag down random people walking by okay. to ask them if they hold any deeply held belief that they want to spend five minutes just chatting about, and I time it for five. Exactly. And Yeah, it could be about anything. Usually it's like spiritual stuff, mm -hmm. but it can, it can really broach any topic. Like okay. gods, karma, magic, ghosts, that type of stuff. Let's see. Do you want to burn five minutes and just chat about something like yeah, that? Yeah, let me. Would you chat okay. with me or am I just strictly talking? I'm going to ask questions. Okay, good. And I want to understand why you believe it. Okay, cool. And it's going to be completely like non confrontational okay. and probably even Go fun. Go for it. Go for it. Time, five minutes. All right. Okay. So you can pick any topic you want. Okay, um, let's go with karma. Karma? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Before we even get any further, okay. how do you define it? Because I want to make sure I understand it. Hmm, let's see. I would say good or bad, what you do could eventually come back to you. Okay. Good or bad. And that's karma. Yeah. Do you have a, a really vivid example of something that happened that you would say karma? Ooh. For me personally, I feel like whenever I say something mean about someone in my head, or if I speak it out in public, um, I'll like break out. And honestly, that's probably not why I break out, but I'll be like, karma. Oh, pimples, karma. interesting. Karma for being being ugly. If you don't think or say anything bad about a no, person? No, if I do. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But if you, if you don't say anything bad... Or think anything bad about a person? Mm -hmm. Do you notice a, a different difference in your complexion? Honestly, like right now, my skin's on a good on a good turn, and I haven't been thinking ugly thoughts. So. Okay. Wow. But that's just a small tidbit of something. Like if I litter, okay, something bad. I have bad luck, so something bad will happen, and I'm just like, it's because I littered. Okay. Yeah. So if you were driving home, or whatever, mm -hmm. heading home, and you toss out some trash on the road. Mm -hmm and something bad happened to you later, you would... Attribute it to that. You'd attribute it to that? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm a strong believer in karma, and if I do something good... You're really strong. Yeah. How sure are you that it's true? Zero to 100. 100% 100 all confidence, no doubt. Zero percent uh, all 
doubt. I would say 82%. 82? This matters, yes. What do you study here? I study communication. Okay. 82% <laughs> confident yeah. that karma is real, that it mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go to this example of you go heading home, okay. trash out the window. Mm -hmm. What would be an example of something happening that you would attribute to that action? Hmm. Common things that have I either break something or... Okay. You'd break a dish or something and... Yeah, break something. Something will... Break a nail. Okay. It's just little things. I'm just like, you know, this is because I littered. Okay. Is there a certain amount of time that can pass? Usually happens within the day. Within a 24-hour period within of time, hours. you'll get karmically mm -hmm. punished for a bad action. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just attribute it to those things. Because if you, if you live a good life, ultimately, good things will happen to you. That's how I feel. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you didn't litter... And you litter. didn't think bad things about mm -hmm. people or call them names mm -hmm. or whatever. And you were just good for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Would you never experience bad things? I think it all goes into my mindset as well. So if I think if I live a good life and something does something bad does happen to me, I feel like I would have a better mindset towards it. Like, oh, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? Like, no. Okay, let me... Let me Sorry. Just, no, it's fine. Um, so if I did something bad, okay. something bad happened, I would attribute it to that thing, and I'd be like, I'm not living a good life. Yes. But if I lived a good life, and something bad happened to me, I would have a better mindset towards it. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get to me as much is if I did something bad before. Does, am I making any I, type of I sense? I think I understand. Do you get what I'm saying? Y yes. You have a better outlook on life when you do positive things. Right. Even if something bad Even happens. Even if something bad happens to you, you'll be able to handle it better. Because you're just mm -hmm. like... Yet how would you know that you being good and avoiding all this... How would you know that it's not karmic punishment? How would I know it's not? Mm. I guess it really just still goes back all into how I like my mindset. Just I'm doing positive things, so this can't be a punishment for all the positive things I've done. It's just things happen. I don't know. I'm things I'm happen. Crazy. Yeah. How do you? I'm like, am I, am I crazy? We have ten seconds. Okay. And we can go longer if you have the time. Okay. How do you differentiate karmic punishment from things happen? Hmm. I think it would be just things that are just, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh, oh, that is a good question. You're making me rethink my whole life. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it would just, if I did something bad and something bad happened immediately after, I feel like this is, this has to correlate. Like. This is punishment. God's telling me, don't do that again. I don't know. That was a good question. Because I'm trying to think of anything bad that's happened and I feel like I've been doing good. I usually just brush it off. 
because I, like I said, my mindset's in a different place. If I haven't done anything wrong, I'm just like, it'll get better. It's almost like a snowball effect for me. If I do something bad and then something bad happens, I'm just like, oh my gosh. And then my mindset is in such a bad place. Maybe karma is not even just something bad happening to you, but just getting you in a in a space that just, well, at least for me, getting you in a space that just, to make you live a better life in the end. Huh. Now I'm like, that percentage looks a little, 82%, I'm going to stick with it. If you have no way of telling the difference between karmic punishment mm -hmm. and things just happening, mm -hmm. why believe in it at all? Hmm. I guess it's just something I live by. It's going to get me through. Honestly. Is 82% the most accurate spot to be? on the confidence? Now it isn't. I would, now you're gonna make me go back home and think about this and I'm like, I need to tell him. Okay. I'll give you a card when we're done so you can, okay, good. can read it again. Cause if I get it, I'm gonna be like, okay, I have it. Let's see, I would say now that I'm a little unsure. I would go with 53. Cause I still believe it. I'm like, where am I going with this? 53 now. Thank you so much for your time. You're awesome. Thanks. You are too. Just a few comments on that. I, I picked that example because it was not about God to illustrate that you can use street epistemology for things other than just God claims. In this case, we used it w with uh, karma. And she mentioned God during that talk briefly. She did. And uh, you probably noticed a little bit of the body language. Sometimes this means closed, but in this case, I mean, she was being very open and honest. So you can't always go off of the, what you assume. She may have been comforting herself rather than being blocking, okay? I, just, I love that she was open, and I love the fact that she was just honestly contemplating her, in her beliefs right, right there, on camera too, you know, with a total stranger. So that was really neat to see. Okay. Before we get to the actual steps of this is how you conduct street epistemology, I wanted to cover a couple of assumptions that we tend to make when we have a conversation with a person. And it's human nature to make assumptions. We just we do it all the time. But I want you to be prepared to revisit these if you end up hitting a wall. And you don't have to directly ask a person or point this out if you notice it. But if you notice these things, you can start asking questions to help them examine it. I'm kind of likening street epistemology lately to triage. So it's as if, you know, pretend like you're driving down the road and you see a car pulled off to the side and you start looking for clues. Is, is there smoke coming out of the engine? Is there what looks like a mechanic under the hood that seems to be helping them? Is it a mother with three kids waving frantically? Uh, is the engine on fire? Is there a flat tire? It, it's, it's sort of similar when, when I'm having a conversation with a person that you want to start looking for clues where do I need to meet this person? Is this person ready for evidence? Or are, do they need to be questioned a little bit? There are some people that are very evidence-based and say, sure, if you show me evidence uh, that the earth is more than 6,000 years old, I will change my mind. Many people who say that don't mean that. But if they do say that, and they, are able, they, able to, they actually commit to that, then you can go ahead and show them evidence. 
there are few people that say that they know everything, but there are some people that do. And you need to be prepared to, uh, for that. Humility is an essential part of street epistemology. There are really people that think that they have it all figured out. And, and I've met them. And it's really interesting, and it's, it's very tough to stay calm and collected when, when, you, when you run into such confident arrogance, but it is possible. Uh, one thing that you might want to try is what goes through your mind when you hear somebody say, I don't know? Or have you ever said, I don't know? Why do you think that that's so wrong? You can start getting into a little bit of that. Are they enamored by that phrase or are they disgusted by it? That's very interesting uh, when you encounter somebody who, uh, who claims to know everything. Unfortunately, that's few and far between. Next thing is, is the person capable of empathy? When we encounter, when we have conversations with people, we usually think that they're, they're probably able to put themselves in another person's shoe, but there are people that actually can't do that. And I've run into a few of those as well. I had a friend that was having a conversation with his dad on immigration or something. And he said, you know, Anthony, I was trying to use street epistemology, but it, it was as if he couldn't see them as human beings. And there are people that are like that. And it's very difficult to have a fruitful conversation if somebody can't empathize with another person. With the young woman with the Bible that we played earlier, or this one with Kiana, uh, we need to have empathy for them as well. People have beliefs because they, they are forming them because they're just being exposed to things. Uh, they're not necessarily stupid or deserving of ridicule. So we need to be open to these people and have empathy for them. I'd like to see more of that actually in the atheist community. In fact, it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm seeing more people say that after learning street epistemology, it's helping me become a better person and my interactions with, with everybody is better because I'm learning this method. All right, another assumption that we make is that the person that you're speaking to wants to believe true things. It's just a default thing, but that's not always the case. There are a lot of people that have told me that it's okay if I'm believing something that's not true. It's scary when you hear somebody say that, and if you prod a little bit, people will usually back off on that, especially if you use an example with one of their children. Uh, you say that you don't, you don't value truth, but do you want your young daughter to value truth? Would you, how would you feel if your young daughter uh, shared the same thought? That usually helps get through the, breaks through. Um, people who say that they don't value truth probably still put a seatbelt on. Well, why would you do that? If, if everything, if truth doesn't matter, if, uh, if you know, protecting yourself in that way is not important, uh, why do that? Okay, another assumption that we make is the person that I'm talking to thinks that truth is objective. That two plus two is four, whether we're here in Oslo or we're back in San Antonio, Texas or anywhere else. But there are a lot of people who say, well, that's okay, everybody can have their own truth. As long as it makes them happy, then it's true for me. Uh, it's very, very, I, I was thrown for a loop the first couple times I ran into that. Like, whoa, uh, do you really mean that? And there are a few things that you can do to get around that. Uh, there's a tool that we use in street epistemology a lot called the Outsider Test for Faith. Uh, Reed was using it with, with, uh, with uh, Tia in his example, where he said, if a Muslim came up to the table and told us that he had a feeling that his God was real, I think that's what it, how it went, would you find that compelling? And she said no. She likely views truth as objective, that there is a one and only truth. When somebody is a, views truth subjectively, they will say, oh yeah, the Muslim is just as true in their belief as I am with Jesus. 
And once somebody goes relativistic, it's very hard to use outsider tests for faith. Uh, there are some other ways around that. I, I've started carrying around little, a little box of candies. And so when I hit this roadblock, I make an assumption that people view truth as objective. But if that comes up, I pull out my little box of candies and say, if we were to add up these total pieces of candy, would the total be even or odd? Now there have been people that say both. And I've spent, I, I have an hour long conversation on video with a guy that insisted that it could be both. But it makes no sense to move beyond relativism and get into a belief about a deity or karma or something else if they think truth is not objective. Understand dictionaries. <laughs> now I'm not talking about, you know, if they know what a dictionary is, but I want, I want to see if they understand how words are formed. There are a lot, many, many people, perhaps people in this room, that say that words have inherent meaning, that a word as it's defined in a particular holy book is the meaning of that word, and everyone else is just sort of using the wrong version of it. Uh, that could be problematic when people think words uh, just have an inherent meaning, that they're not made by human beings. And one thing that I've done, I, I spent a month once just going out with my camera and I was carrying around a dictionary asking people what they thought about, what, what do you think about a dictionary when you see that? How do you think words are formed? Can you take me through the process? Sometimes just asking people how they think a word is formed and then gets added to the dictionary, they, the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Humans are actually making these words. I have run into a few people that are so stubborn though that they're insisting that that words have these inherent meanings and they're not made up by humans. And one thing that I've tried recently with some success is asking, <clears throat> do, do you, did you name your children? And then that usually helps them break through the impasse. Yeah, I gave this person a name. Everybody calls her by that name. She is now that name. If she wanted to change her name, yeah, we could probably do that and everyone agree to it. So that usually helps. Usually though, in, in these types of conversations, we, are, we kind of see more people that are unwilling to entertain a hypothetical. So you say, okay, so let's pretend that a, that a Hindu came by the table and joined us. Like, no, 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 uh, that's, that's unrealistic, that just wouldn't happen. Uh, there are some people that will resist hypotheticals for some reason, which is really baffling to me because we use hypotheticals all the time. For, for you to get from your residence to here, you probably played thousands of hypotheticals through your mind as you were navigating your way here. So we do them all the time. This is a huge barrier to the progress of street epistemology when your interlocutor does not want to be honest with you or themselves. The clip with Kiana was wonderful because she was honest, she was open. She was really willing to look at her belief and that was great. If a person is not being honest with you or themselves, it's hard to make progress. You really need to find an honest, open interlocutor one thing that you can do, I think, is to try to model honesty to them. You can have them ask you a, a question about a deeply held, a held belief that you hold or something that you used to believe that don't. You don't believe that anymore, and it was difficult, it was painful to get rid of that belief. You can model that openness. Share a time that being honest helped you. The elements of an effective SE chat. These are, gosh, there's probably like 20 of these. And I thought about numbering them. And then I realized probably in, in a year, I'll have three more steps to add to this. So I, I didn't number them. And they're not linear either. This is probably the ideal optimal path to go when you're using street epistemology. But you don't have to go this way. You can skip around. You might skip around, uh, realize, oh, you know, I really should have done this. And you can go back. 
And this has sort of been honed over the last five years of myself going out and having these talks. All right, the first thing that I think is really important is to assess your goals. What are you hoping to get out of this conversation? Do you want to help a person? Are you looking to deconvert somebody? Do you want to ridicule them? Do you want to make yourself feel better by tearing somebody else down? Uh, these are all things that I've done myself. I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but I, I, I really changed quite a bit over the last five years of doing this, and uh, my goals have really changed. Uh, today, my goal is to help a person identify a faulty epistemology. Did I base this belief on a, on a shaky foundation? And if they can discover that, and they, wow, oh my gosh, yeah, I need to revisit that belief. That's a success to me. But this goal, these goals vary from person to person. You can have 10 people that know street epistemology and you can ask them what their goal is and you'll probably get 10 different answers. Which I think might frustrate some people who are critical of this method because they're getting mixed answers. But really, the, it's up to the practitioner to decide what their goals are. I like to see street epistemology more as a tool, kind of like a hammer. You can use a hammer to build a house, renovate a house, tear down a house. So this is a really interesting and powerful tool that can be used to achieve lots of different things. Well, of course, it's important to study up. If this might be your first time hearing about street epistemology, and that's fine. There are lots of video examples that are out there. There's an app called Atheos that you can put on your Android or Apple device, and you can find yourself in these different scenarios. There are tutorial videos. There are videos like this that you've seen out there. There's the book where this originated from called A Manual for Creating Atheists. There's a podcast, there's a study guide, there are these Facebook groups where you can go and inter inter uh, engage with people who are learning this method as well. All right, this is important. When I first started going out and doing street epistemology, I went to the noisiest part of town, which is in front of the Alamo, where all the street preachers were yelling. And I thought, I want to go talk to the hardest of the hardcore believers and start practicing this method. And it was probably the worst location that I could have chosen. The street preachers are usually there to preach and they're not there to listen or think about their beliefs. So the venue is very important. I wouldn't go to a protest. Now these locations are good for finding people to speak to, but I wouldn't necessarily engage with them right then and there. You can meet them, you can give them some water, you can give them a phone number, maybe invite them to sit down for coffee and then have a talk with them. With street epistemology, this is not necessarily an outdoor thing. Most people who do SE are doing it over social media, or over the telephone or you know, face to face. They're not going out on the street initiating talks. But if you do want to do that, try to find a location that's relatively quiet, a good amount of passerby. Also consider your safety too. Make sure that there's just enough people going by where if you get, your, get into a tricky spot, there's somebody's walking around to, to help you. And try to minimize disruptors. Performing street epistemology on Twitter is kind of hard or Facebook because you can be making wonderful progress and then somebody who's unfamiliar with this method will jump in and ridicule the person that you're talking to. And then the person that you're talking to focuses on the person who's ridiculing them, and then it's just an uphill battle from there. Assess your interlocutor. Now, I hate to say this, but I found after about five years, this may come as a huge shock, and I mean no offense, but it seems like the older a person is, the less likely they are to reflect on their beliefs and be open-minded. Um, there are some exceptions to that. I have a couple of examples with older folks, and they were just as capable of reflecting on their belief as somebody younger. Um, take a look to see how fast they're walking. Are they walking fast? Are they walking slow? Are they smiling or are they scowling? 
I might be actually in, in, implementing some sort of bias in my conversations because I tend to pick people who look friendly as opposed to whom, someone who's looking kind of gruff and, and focusing on their walk. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, you want to meet them where they're at. Are they really evidence-based? Or is this the first time that they've critically thought about a belief that they've held? I also think it's important to disclose what you're up to. State what you're hoping to achieve and be honest with them. And you can give an example. Oh yeah, I've been out here for the last couple of years. I've been having talks with people. I let them choose the belief. They tend to pick karma or something political or their view on the president or maybe they pick God every once in a while. And I ask questions that gently challenges how they could be so sure that what they believe is true. And I even go so far as to say sometimes some people are even less confident in the belief at the end of the talk, even a five minute talk than they were at the start. Uh, sometimes they're more confident, sometimes they're less confident, sometimes they're just as confident. Uh, so I think it's really important to be open uh, with what you're doing and get consent, all right? Uh, well, when I go with my camera, I don't, well, I used to, I just say, hey, can we talk about God? It's, it's become a little bit more refined these days. And I, I want to make sure that they're, they're agreeing to participate. And I revisit it every once in a while too. Uh, you may have noticed I have a timer in that example. At the end of five minutes, Usually they don't notice. They're so engrossed in the conversation that we just keep going. Usually at about the 10 minute mark, I'll say, hey, uh, we've, we've exceeded the limit. Do you want to keep going? So I give them an out. But generally, most people are having so much fun during the talks that they want to keep going. But I always just kind of check, make sure that they, are they, they're still consenting to going forward. Revisit your own attitude. Uh, am I here to, to, to harm this person or help them? And uh, the other thing too is, Am I open to believing what they believe? As crazy as it possibly may sound, am I open to believing? If they have a good reason, I should be willing to accept it or investigate it and look into it further. I, I think it's impossible to be completely unbiased when you're having a conversation with somebody. I may even agree with you on what you're saying, but when I have these conversations, I want to try to be as neutral as possible. It's a compliment to me now when somebody says at the end of a talk, Anthony, I have no idea where you stand on this issue, and we've been talking for 20 minutes. You've given me no indication whether you agree or disagree with me. And that's a compliment. I think that's really important. But if you're asked, it's fine to share your position on something. Okay, I don't, I don't advise that you, that you hide your, your belief. You can share it with them. But just keep in mind that disclosing to a 70-year-old grandmother of 12 on the trail that you're an atheist and she's been a Christian her whole life might scare her and it could jeopardize the conversation. So you might want to just kind of try to determine when you want to release certain bits of information about your position. But I think I've done this enough so, so, so much that I think I could probably disclose that information with her to her without scaring her too much. Um, but acknowledge that you do have a bias. Don't pretend that you don't. It's so important to build rapport. It puts people at ease. And as you're listening to them, you're demonstrating that you're listening to them. You might find a common interest. And I would also say, you know, you don't have to lie. You can tell true stories. So like when I'm on the trail and somebody says, oh, I love this trail. It's wonderful. I get so relaxed at the end of it. And I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I come here with my wife and kids all the time. That's true. We do go there. And we do have something in common. So it's very important to build rapport. The other thing too I found is that Pay attention during the rapport building phase because there are certain things that the person might reveal to you that could be useful later on. So a woman was talking about how 
uh, it, it was her fastest time going through the trail. So when we started hitting this, this barrier of, uh, of objective truth, she thought truth was relative, we started talking about it in terms of distance on the trail. And would it be different for two different people? Or would it be the same? So little things like that can really be useful later on. People love to be listened to. They love to, to have people hear them out. And a lot of this is also repeating back what they're saying. When Kiana was expressing why she thought karma was real, I was repeating it back to her. I was summarized. So let me understand. Okay, in a 24-hour period of time, you'll be karmically punished for a bad action. I was listening very intently to what she was saying. I was repeating it back to her. This demonstrates that I'm paying attention. It's important for me to understand her. And people love to be listened to. And great listening leads to even better questions. So it's very important that you listen because you can form wonderful questions when you listen. All right, we finally made it to the identify claim. Some people think this is the first one. Oh, you just wait till somebody makes a claim and then there you go. But there are a lot of things that lead up to it. You need to have a claim though before you can investigate the belief. I claim that global warming is a Chinese hoax. I claim that the earth is 6,000 years old. I claim that karma is real. These are where those what type of questions, remember that pie chart that was flipping up on the screen there? Uh, identifying what a person believes is extremely important. When they say that they believe in a ghost, it's important to understand what do they mean by that. They could just mean uh, a, an unexplainable squeak, or they can mean no, an apparition that floats and it was white and it was hazy and it, it let off this odor as it went by. Okay, so it's very important to identify the claim. I love to encourage my interlocutor, my conversation partner, to tell me what these words mean. For example, like ghost. Uh, I was having a talk with a woman once, uh, very recently, where I forgot, I, I asked her if, she, if faith is a part of her belief, and she said yes, and then she asked me, well, wait a second, how are we defining that word? Perfect question. I should have asked her that question. And she, I, I forgot, and she, she, uh, she, she asked me, how am I using that word? I declined to give a definition of the word faith because she is the one that was employing it in her belief. So I asked her, as much as I'd love to give you my definition of it, let's go with yours because it's your definition that matters. And she agreed to that. You want to look for other suitcase words uh, when they come up. Faith is a good one. Trust is a good one. Truth is another suitcase word. Words that are very complicated. Ghost, God. What are you saying? Love. <laughs> Love is another one of those words. So when you hear these words that can have wildly different meanings, ask the person to be, be very clear and explain it to you. Can you explain it to me as if I'm a young kid, what you mean by the word love or God? Let's unpack it together. I like doing this. This is that scale where we ask a person, how sure are you on a scale from zero to 100 that this belief is true? People are forming beliefs. So either you believe something or you don't. What I'm interested in when we have these talks is a person's confidence in that belief. Okay, so you can believe something, but you can be like, yeah, I kind of think that that's true. Or you can believe something and say, I am absolutely sure that that's true. And anything else in between. It's the confidence in the conclusion that we're scaling. And this is so much more than just a number. I could ask somebody, how confident are you that a God exists? And they can say, 100, 100% confident. Or they could say, I'm 100% confident 
that Jesus is real? It's a same number, different answer, really. And this does not originate from philosophy, the scale. It kind of throws people for a loop when they like, what is this scale thing? This is really more for motivational interviewing. Uh, this is happening a lot when uh, psychologists are having conversations with people who are addicted to substances or they're trying to lose weight, those types of things. In order to really get to the foundation of why a person is believing something, we need to identify the reasons. And I like to ask them, what reason drives your confidence the most? We can spend hours and hours and hours talking about the Bible with this individual, but that might not even really be the reason why. But if it is, then we need to isolate that, stay on that, and figure out what is it about the Bible that's so compelling. And the foundation is what holds everything up. We want to go right to the foundation. We don't want to start arguing all these little points in doctrine, and this verse says this, and this verse says that. We're not interested in that. I want to know why you think this book is real, is true, and how did you determine that that's the case. Obtained buy-in is very important as well. If you found that this method that you're using to conclude that this belief is true, if you found that it was unreliable, would it lower your confidence? And if they say yes, then you know that you're on the right track. I would also suggest that you don't provide them with examples. Would this lower your confidence? Would that lower your confidence? Would this lower your confidence? Just ask them, what would lower your confidence? What would it take to show that your belief was not true? rather than just start throwing things at them. And observe how people are responding. Okay, look at their body language. In that talk with Kiana, it was so wonderful because she was, she, she was really thinking about her belief. She was deep in thought. And it was very tempting to want to talk over that and interrupt that. But just being quiet and, and just letting her think that through was probably one of the best things that I could have done. Body language is very important. And notice what's getting a reaction. When you ask a question, if a person steps back or they touch their neck or they're like, oh yeah, I don't know about that. That's kind of the area that you probably should be focusing on. So look for little, little tells like that. If it appears that you've made progress, revisit the scale. I did that in the example with Kiana there. I said, now that we've had some time to think about it, is 82% confidence the most accurate spot to be? And I think at first she resisted it um, and, and so, so kind of I think it worked out well. She said, I, I, don't, I don't know if I could be so confident. What was really interesting about that talk is that I ran into her later and she wanted to talk again and she lowered her confidence even more. And she was even talking about lower numbers. She was saying, 33%, I, I don't know if I could drop to a 33% in one day. I mean, uh, she was really walking it through. It was so cool. And try to end on good terms. Try, try to give people a way to contact you. Uh, give them a card or uh, exchange email addresses or something. And it's always a good idea to end before things get irate. Or sometimes I've had great conversations like that one where we've hit this high moment and then we end up talking longer and then we, I don't, we start getting off some other topic and it almost seems to dilute the impact of the first half of the talk. So sometimes knowing when to talk and end it is, is very important. And uh, give people time to process these things. Okay, Kiana's going to need time at her house when she's thinking about the talk to think about, yeah, is this a belief that I can really hold? Uh, what would my life be like without this belief? These talks can be physically and emotionally taxing, and aftercare, I think, is very important for your interlocutor, uh, and it's, it's very important for you, too. And I wanted to cover some of the things. 
it's incredible how emotional a talk could get in a short amount of ta- time and how these connections could be made. And to just say, okay, thank you very much for your time. And you move on to the next, and they're just like, you know, you kind of leave them in a state of bewilderment. Uh, you do want them to reflect on their belief, but you don't want to just give them whiplash either. So uh, give them a way to contact you. I do think we have an obligation to be available to them and I have resources available for them as well. It's, it's weird. I've been doing this for a while and I've had people reach out to me two years after a talk to say, I've been thinking about that talk, you know, every week in the two years that we've met and I can no longer hold that belief. And I want to thank you for having that talk with me. And I want to actually learn this method now because I think it was a wonderful tool. That is just a very, very wonderful thing. I've had people contact me too to say, that was a great talk. Can you talk to my mom next? (laughs) Very cool. Allow time. Please give everybody enough time to process. Uh, That time for reflection is critical. It might be tempting to say, hey, Kiana, let's meet tomorrow so we can pick this up. Move at her speed. Move at her speed. Move at the speed of your interlocutor. Some people are ready for that. Uh, Some people will say, yeah, I want to meet with you tomorrow so we can pick this up. And some people may say, okay, thanks for your time. I'll be in touch with you. And then maybe a month will pass and then they'll reach out to you. So move at the speed of your interlocutor. I do think it's very important to offer support. There are resources that are available now. There's Recovering from Religion, which is a wonderful resource. I've been volunteering for them for probably almost three years now, where if you're looking for somebody to just listen to you, not ask you difficult questions like we tend to do in street epistemology, but this is a resource that, hey, uh, are, are you having some doubt? What's going on? Are you, are you stopping? Are you, are you considering leaving the faith? Are you considering leaving your religious beliefs and struggling with that? It's a great resource. You can call and talk to a person or chat. There's also a group that I started called Emerging Faith, which is kind of a play on words, but it's for people who are leaving, leaving or have left a religious group uh, but they're surrounded by people who still believe and they're looking for a community. So you just uh, email emergingfaithhelp at gmail.com and there's a little bit of a vetting process and then we can add you to the group. There are videos, blogs, support groups, etc. Uh, but again, I do think that we have that obligation. You know, if you're going to embark on these conversations with people, you need to stick with it all the way to the end and help people and be there for them. And jot down some notes. You know, make a note of what was successful and what was just bad about that talk. Okay, that could be really useful. Uh, you can also write down the questions that you wish that you had asked. Note areas of improvements and those key moments. If you don't hear back from a person, but they seemed interested in the talk, it can't hurt to reach out, but don't nag. All right, don't just keep bugging them every two weeks or something like that. And you can reach out for them uh, about other things besides the claim. And you can even ask them for feedback. Hey, you know, it's been six months since we talked. It seemed like we we really had a good conversation. I'm wondering, do you ever think about it? Did you think the talk was harmful or helpful? Because if I'm harming somebody, I I want to try to improve on this. Kind of closing out on the last here. It could be really taxing on yourself to have these conversations. There's a lot of troubled people out there. And some people have never had the opportunity to share these emotional things with anybody before. And they finally have somebody, even if it's a stranger with a camera, and they offload. It's amazing what somebody will offload on you after uh, three minutes into a talk. They're telling you the most, the most uh, personal things. Um, and it could really, it could, it could kind of get on you 
if you if you do a lot of these talks. So my recommendation is try to come up with a plan to decompress where you can try to leave these experiences that you're having out in the field. When I have these talks, I try not to take them home with me. Uh, when I come home, I don't, I don't want to talk to my kids and my wife about this devastating thing that somebody just told me. I kind of like to leave that out in the field. Uh, and you can also find friends or communities for people that will let you vent and share those stories with you. So look for that. And finally, share your experiences. Uh, people are learning street epistemology from the examples that are being posted on YouTube and we're sharing in some of the Facebook groups. There's a couple Facebook groups that are out there that I highly recommend. Uh, if you just do a search for street epistemology in Facebook, you will find uh, several of the groups. There's a Reddit for street epistemology. There's a Twitter. And ask for feedback. This is how this method grows. You know, my approach, I think, has gotten better over the years because people have watched my videos and people are not, share, uh, people are not shy about telling you how you screwed up when you have a conversation. And, and that, but that was great feedback. As soon as I finally got over my ego and I'm like, how dare they tell me what to do? Uh, it was actually helpful. Like, okay, no, 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 this is good, this is good feedback. Uh, and that was great. So in closing, I, I do think street epistemology is a tool that anyone can use. Whether, regardless of your belief, if you really think Allah is the one true God or you think Jesus is real or you're, you're a full-blown hardcore atheist, this is a tool for every person to use and it's a polite tool and it's an effective tool. And I'm very honored to be able to come here to Oslo to give you this talk. And I hope that was a good introduction of street epistemology to you. And I think at this point, I'd like to move into the questions. Questions and answers. Could you please tell us a little bit about your equipment setup? What I usually do is I have a, a GoPro strapped to my chest with the camera pointing down. But I, when I see somebody walking by, I usually start recording, but I'm recording the ground because I want to get them agreeing to being recorded on camera. I want that consent on camera. Uh, and sometimes even the things that they say leading up, they might make some sort of comment as I want to get that on camera. Um, I'm out there with a whiteboard also and a timer. So I say, hey, I'm interviewing people for five minutes. I, and people are, it's amazing. This might be an American thing. I don't know how this would play out in Oslo. People are like, oh yeah, you're in trouble if you do this out here. I think, I don't really know what to expect. I haven't tried it. But in the United States, in my area, in Texas, in San Antonio, it's very, I would say one out of three people agree to talk to me. That's a high number. I mean, that's really high. So. If, if somebody says, nah, 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 usually the next person's going to agree to it. So I don't have to wait very long before I have these talks. And then if they agree, I flip the camera up. And I've, lately I've been adding another camera uh, that will kind of give me two different angles. So I can jump to that. And I set a timer for five minutes to respect their time. And sometimes if I encounter some of those uh, barriers that I mentioned at the start of the talk, where they're just not being honest in their preach mode and they don't really want to honestly reflect on their belief, when the, when the timer hits five minutes, I've got a great excuse to say thank you very much and move on. So it's, it, the timer is good for them to leave and it's also good for me to end the conversation. What do you disclose about the recording? Yeah, it's pretty obvious that I'm recording, but I want to let them know, uh, and sometimes they even ask, what are you planning on doing with this footage? And I say, I have a hobby where I'm doing street epistemology. I like to share my examples, the, the better talks, 
with with my I like to share the better talks with my audience. And uh, I have a YouTube channel where I upload the best and I have a YouTube channel where I upload the best talks. So uh, yeah, and, and interestingly, even when you disclose that this could possibly go on YouTube, people are like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Now sometimes I have wonderful talks, and then at the end, they're like, I don't know if I want that going out on YouTube. Can, we, can you just delete that? And we kind of start entering a bartering phase. Would you mind if we did, if I blurred your face? Would that be okay? And they're like, uh, that, that's okay. And some people are like, no. Uh, you can use audio only, but don't use video. And then I honor their wishes. What are the main issues critics have with street epistemology? Okay, so the main critics I think right now are, well, it's interesting. They sort of fall in two categories, atheists and believers, God believers. Uh, some atheists, they hear street epistemology and they think this is proselytizing. This is just as bad as the street preacher on the corner. And then they finally take the time to learn it. And they, they start realizing, okay, this isn't as bad as, as I thought. But I think the most, uh, the biggest criticism seems to be coming from the professional God believers. The people that they, they write books, uh, they defend the faith, they give speeches, uh, they defend the faith. They go through all these things to, they're very, very invested in the belief. And I think their main criticism of this approach is that they recognize that it's effective and their major criticism is that you're picking on people who are ill-prepared to defend their beliefs. Why don't you pick on somebody your own size? Why don't you pick on somebody who studied this for 20 years? And it's really interesting because they don't seem to have a problem with the person believing the claim without all that study, but they suddenly expect that person to have experience in defending it. So it's a little interesting, the double standard that's there. But that's, that tends to be the biggest criticism is that you're, you're uh, it's, it's, there's two parts. You're picking on somebody who's ill-prepared and you're not disclosing what you're doing, which is why during this talk, I spent some time on being upfront. Let a person know what you plan to do. Let them know what the potential outcome is. But don't go overboard because I've done that in some of my videos and I've had people complain. You are over-explaining what you're doing. You've, you've now primed them for change because you've told them that they might change. So you have to, there's some, there's some sort of weird gray line that I haven't figured out yet. Have you ever used street epistemology with someone who is more studied on the topic being discussed? Wonderful question. Have I ever used street epistemology with somebody who's actually studied this method? And they, they've researched it, they're studied in philosophy or, or religious studies or something. And the answer is yes. And the way I like to say it is that street epistemology is not more difficult with a studied believer. It just takes more time. And I think these professional believers, remember how I talked about honesty? They are very, very invested in this belief. They have families that are being fed from this belief. Uh, it would be very difficult, very destructive to them to not hold the belief. Um, I think a person could really struggle with, a, with abandoning a belief when they're so invested into it. Do you want atheists only to use street epistemology? Wouldn't it be great to see a Mormon using this with a Muslim? And then the Muslim using the same method? In a way, I don't... Honestly, I, I'm not sure how somebody who believes in something supernatural based on a shaky foundation could embark on SE without ultimately losing their own belief. Okay? That's, that's a bold claim, right? That's a bold claim. <laughs> Mm. Okay, good. I would actually invite you to our 
That could be. Yeah, that reminds me. There's there are some. There's a Facebook group that's. Oh, there's a Facebook group that's just for atheists only. But we started realizing, well, that's silly. If we want everyone to learn this, this should be open to everybody. So there are a ton of Christians and other believers in, and non-believers in this other group called Learn Street Epistemology. So I, I advise you to join uh, that. Um, I've used, remember I talked about, um, I might share the same view as the person I'm talking to. I've used Street Epistemology with people that don't believe in gods as I don't believe in a god. And I've, I've helped an atheist lower their certainty that there is no God. <laughs> she dropped from 100% to a 99 after she realized that, hey, if I'm really open to new ideas, how could I possibly be 100%? And so uh, I, have ex I have examples on my own channel of me using SE with people who are atheists. Does conducting street epistemology change the practitioner in any meaningful way? What I really get excited about is seeing the atheist demeanor change. They start seeing God believers with respect and treating them with respect. And I think that that's a really great thing. Um, I think it's harder for a God believer to dismiss an atheist if you're being polite with them. But if you're being a jerk to them, then it's very easy to say, I don't wanna to talk to her. She's rude, She's, she makes me feel bad. What does a success in street epistemology mean? There are no long-term studies. I don't even know what effective or success means. Remember I said at the start, like, we could ask 10 people what success is and it would differ. To some people, a success is, I want to talk to a God believer and not lose my cool and not laugh at what they have to say, but really listen and understand and maybe get an I don't know out of them. That's cool. I don't need to see a drop in confidence, but if I can see that they've taken some time to think about their belief formation, that's a win for me. But no, there's, there's no study. We're at the nascent stages of this method. And it's one of the reasons why I'm spending a lot of time promoting it is because we want more people to be aware of it so we could eventually get funding for studying it. Okay, this is all circumstantial. I have many, many examples, probably 20, 30 people now that I've spoken to that don't believe the things that they used to believe because of our talks. But that's not scientific. I, like I said, I could be self-selecting certain people or whatever. So yeah, we, we really need a nice formal study on that, but that's gonna take money. But we're in this, let me tell you what SE is first. And then if we can get some, some people with money behind this, then we can actually really start researching it. Do you have advice for narrowing things down when people give a bunch of reasons for a belief? Yeah, so the author of the book uh, has mentioned that his observations is that when you talk to somebody who's very well versed in their topic, they have a lot of reasons which is why I like those shortcuts that I mentioned at the start, where you could say, hey, uh, you have this collection of beliefs. If, if one of those beliefs wasn't in there, would the basket get lighter? Would the reasons that you have uh, to hold the belief diminish? Would your confidence drop? And if they say, yeah, if, if that miracle that I really think happened when I was 12, if I suddenly become less confident that that was a miracle from my God, that would affect my 100% confidence. I might drop to a 75 or an 80 or maybe even down to like a 50. That's great because now you have something to work with. So I, I like using just very simple questions to say, is this something worth, is this a justification holding up your belief? And if it's not, I'm not, not really interested in it. Any advice on how to encourage organic conversations? The reason why I decided to go out and initiate them is because I wanted practice. I, I, I recognized that it would be 
very, very difficult to have a camera with me and wait for the right moment when somebody said something and then get it on camera. So I initiate the talks so that I can have examples to show people and get good at it and get feedback from people. Um, I've, I've taken to walking around with a t-shirt that might make some, you know, some sort of claim like, uh, I had a t-shirt once that said atheist voter on it. And you know, flying around the United States with that, it gets people's attention. And I was in the jetway and it was really hot. We were waiting for our bags. You know how you can like, you can drop off your bag, get on the airplane and then, they, then you can get it. So I was waiting there with a guy, I was hot. He's like, he looked at my shirt. He's like, uh, you like the heat, don't you? <laughs> he was referring to hell and so anyway we had a great talk I was like hey I don't believe you know you believe so we ended up getting our bags walking out into the airport and we had a 30 minute talk and it was great he, he said he was evidence based and he indicated what would change his mind and I pointed to him to evidence and he was really kind of startled by the conversation and I can tell I had a strong suspicion I should say that the conversation really made a huge impact. So, so I think there are things that you can do to, to look and look, look for the jeweler that a person's wearing perhaps or a shirt that they're wearing. Do you know any prominent atheists familiar with street epistemology? Well, the, the president of American Atheists, David Silverman is following me on Twitter and has retweeted a lot of my stuff. Uh, Matt Dillahunty uh, is, is following a lot of my stuff. Uh, I think, well, I'm Richard Dawkins. I met him three years ago at a dinner. It was maybe four, maybe it was four years ago. Uh, it was this big fancy dinner, and I, I had the opportunity to have like three minutes with him. And I explained that I'm doing this thing called street epistemology based on this book by Dr. Peter Bogosian. And he was so excited, and he waved over one of his handlers, and, and he said, this man is harassing street preachers. <laughs> He was so excited. I'm like, no, 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 it's not exactly how it works. I'm actually respectfully engaging with them, and this is what I ask them these questions, and they tend to think about it more, and it's really interesting. And I noticed the next day he was following me on Twitter, and he has been for years, but he's never retweeted a damn thing that I've done. So Richard, <laughs> if you're out there, show me some love. But I, I think he's probably watching, but he hasn't really said too much on it. But uh, yeah, it, it seems to be picking up. I had a really good opportunity to, to do street epistemology with with Aaron Ra, and he and I went out and did street epistemology together. We spent the whole day together uh, going out with our cameras and teaching. He has an hour and a half long video on his channel where he attempts it. He attempts to put away his sword and, and uh, actually take out you know, another tool in his arsenal and try to have more friendly conversations. And it eventually it kind of went off the rails, but it was still a good, it was still a good video to watch. Do you have any experience using street epistemology over social media? And the answer is yes, although my preference really is face-to-face, -face, mainly because other people notice the conversation and sabotage it. And, and I, I say, hey, I'm trying something different here. Can you just observe? And sometimes they do for a little bit of the back and forth, but then maybe somebody else jumps in or that person gets impatient. Like, why aren't you telling them that it's stupid to think that that's true? And you're, you're letting all these golden opportunities to show them how wrong they are slip by. What's going on? Uh, so it's pretty difficult. If I were to do it over social media, I would probably use Facebook Messenger like a one-on-one -on -one, as opposed to on your wall where other people can see it. You kind of keep it a closed type of conversation. But face-to-face -face is so much better. Uh, do it over Skype if you can or something like that. Have you ever used street epistemology with more than one person at the same time? I have. 
And I have a couple of examples on my channel, and it's extremely difficult because what I found is if I'm asking you a question, the partner, uh, let's say that you're now thinking about this wonderful question that I just asked you. Your partner will answer that for you. <laughs> or uh, then she'll ask me a question, and then that you're starting to listen to our conversation and not thinking about the great question that I just asked you. Uh, there's a good video on my channel with two Mormons. It's a, it's a man and woman, and they're Mormons. And the woman has a shirt that says faith in these huge letters. And, and the guy was so excited to want to talk to me. He's like, oh, he's like, I want to share this with you. It's like sharing a piece of delicious cake. I want to share this belief with you. And he was just so motivated. But uh, the same sort of challenges happened. Uh, one partner would be interrupting the other person or interrupting their train of thought. So it's difficult. There is an advantage though, I think, with more than one person is that you're both experiencing it. So the other partner might remind the other one of it, like, hey, what did you think about that talk? So there might be more opportunity for reflection later, but it's definitely more challenging. How do you adjust your approach when you encounter someone who appears to be lacking empathy? So the question is, when you do encounter a person who seems to lack empathy, how do you adjust your approach so that you can make some progress with them. I don't think at this moment I have a good answer for you. It's, this is almost a clinical answer where, and what's interesting is that people who are in psychology are watching these videos and they are excited. They're seeing people using similar questioning techniques and having amazing results. And then they contact me and say, that person was clearly a sociopath that you talked to. Like they have these very, they are able to pick up on these things, but they give me advice. So I think I have three or four very close friends now who are, who are versed in that field, but I have no experience in that whatsoever. I'm not experienced in philosophy. I'm not experienced in psychology. I'm not experienced in, in um, linguistics or anything like that. Like this is a skill that I've acquired from just practicing it, which is, which is why I'm excited to, to share it to people, share it with people. Because I think it's something that everybody can learn. You don't need to be specialized in it. You just need to understand it and practice it. So to answer your question, I don't really have any advice other than perhaps recognize your own limitations. I, I met this one guy on the trail. He was so aggressive with me. He was very rules-based. And right from the get-go, he wanted to know why I, why I was out there and why am I out there with my camera. And I, are you smoking pot out here? And pot should be illegal. And the next thing I know, he's, he's arguing with me why... A marijuana should be uh, should not be legalized in the United States and he uh, I said um, what would change your mind and he said nothing he was just very stubborn and I think he not only not only lacked empathy but um, had that inability to imagine perhaps very very frustrating and I was just polite to him and I listened to him and I jotted down a few notes I ran into him about a month later and he kind of sheepishly approached me like hey how you doing I think he kind of felt bad for his outburst in being so aggressive. Uh, so maybe that's an approach, but I, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer to that. That's a tough one. I hope to have an answer in the next couple of years, maybe. Uh, let's go over here. Yes, ma'am. Have you ever considered using an assistant to help you film or do other tasks during these talks? I've considered it, and a lot of people will message me and say, Hey, Anthony, I'm swinging by San Antonio, and I'm visiting the United States, and I'd love to go out with you. And, and film this stuff, and, and, it, and I've tried that, and it's a little awkward, frankly, because now I'm a little self-conscious because now somebody is, you know, it's weird. I could probably get used to it. Um, plus also I think it might be a little unnerving for the person that I'm talking to, 
if there's now suddenly somebody over here filming us both, as opposed to two passive cameras that they've forgotten about two minutes into the talk. How do you decide the best time, if any, to disclose your own views and biases during a chat? I do think it kind of comes down to the, the practitioner of it. There are some people who say, I don't want to disclose my position on it because I know it's going to cause them to become defensive. What I've learned to do is somebody says, like sometimes two minutes into the talk about God, they're like, wait a second, you do you not believe in a God? And I'll say, you know, if you don't mind, let's finish the five minute talk and then I'll answer any question you have. So I've kind of compromised where I push it off to the end, but then I do answer it. Because I think it would be rude to not answer it. But I do recognize that answering it could influence their behavior and it could make them more closed and it could complicate your ability to challenge challenge their beliefs. Have you ever considered recruiting one of your conversations partners during a joint interview? In the conversation with that Mormon couple, that's exactly what happened. The husband was very focused on, this is what I believe, and it says this in my book. And the wife was getting it. She's like, no, 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 honey. He's asking how you know that that's true. She was, she was getting it. So I was, I was very excited to see that. Do you ever have an audience when you are conducting street epistemology? Yeah, I have done that once. I went out with a guy and he was visiting. We went out and there was two guys coming off the trail and we just, we split off in pairs. So we were both having conversations. Uh, what gets a little awkward is when you're done with your talk, but then their talk is still going and then the guy's getting impatient and then you're sort of making small talk. And, uh, but yeah, there's, there's all sorts of ways that you can go about doing this. Do you have any suggestions for staying calm during these talks? One suggestion that I found useful is to pretend that people are watching you, that you do have an audience. Pretend that you're on the stage and there's an audience of people watching you. And in my case, that's usually the case because I'm either live streaming it or I'll upload the video and then 3,000 people will watch it in, an, in a week's period of time. And I, I get people critiquing me all the time. So it's very easy for me to pretend that I'm on a stage because in a, in a way that I am. So that helps me to keep calm. I also try to remind myself that, I also try to remind myself that these are not stupid people. They may have just never been given the tools to question what they have been taught or what they believe. They've never taken the time to reflect on it. So I've gained a, a lot of empathy for them. So I try to remind myself, I could just as easily be in their shoes if I didn't grow up differently or, or read this particular book or been exposed to this particular group of people. So, so that often helps. Um, other tips. I have a whole blog post on this. It's, uh, it's, on, it's on the Street Epistemology website. You can check it out. But that's a frequent question that comes up, like, how do you remain so calm in the face of some of these wild things that people say? Uh, but it's important. And you have to remind yourself that getting upset and showing frustration is not going to be effective. So I remind myself what my goal is. My goal is to help a person think about the method they use to get to that belief. And if I remind myself that, then it's pretty easy to say, okay, if, if I express disgust at what they're telling me, uh, that's probably not going to be fruitful. So there, there's a whole slew of things that you can do. Okay, that was it. Thank you very much, everybody. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.